Okay, we come to Creation Day 6, and uh, you may recall that uh, we looked at this format of forming and filling, uh, days 1, 2, and 3 forming, days 4, 5, and 6 filling. By that, uh, the forming days were days when God created, if you will, the setting for what he later would occupy with creatures or stars, as the case may be. And uh, so you've got uh, day one is a day of forming with let there be light. And day four, uh, you have the luminaries, you have the stars and the great lights to govern the day and to govern the night. Uh, In day two, you've got the firmament that separated the waters above and the waters below. And then in day five, which is verses 20 through 23, you've got um, the, the... the fish and the fowl being created to occupy the heavens and occupy the seas that have been separated in day two. And in day three, uh, you've got uh, the gathering of the dry land. And in day six, you've got the um, animals uh, and also mankind. So you've got day one corresponding to day four, day two corresponding with day five, day three corresponding with day six, but God forming his creation and then filling his creation uh, as we move along. So we come to day six, and um, Oren Wiersbe, if you're not familiar, he's just a, just a wonderful uh, commentator, but uh, God had formed the sky and filled it with heavenly luminaries and flying birds. I just made mention of, of that just a moment ago. He formed the seas and filled the waters with various aquatic creatures, uh, days two and five, etc. And so we come to the, the capstone, the, the climax of creation in day six, when uh, God is going to fill the land both with um, animate uh, animals who are beasts and crawling creatures uh, and, and the like, and then uh, obviously mankind. And there's a, a very unique feature about the way God created mankind, and we'll look at that. That's really the, the, the high point uh, in, in all of this. But, uh, but God creates uh, the man and his wife. Uh, we'll see when we get to chapter 2, that's where you get the details on Eve uh, being created and, and Adam uh, coming to recognize that he needed a mate. And uh, so all of that is described in day 2. But there are not two creation accounts that are contradictory to each other. There are two creation uh, accounts that are complementary to each other. And day 2 fills in some of the details that we have uh, or pardon me, chapter 2 deals with some of the details that we, that we don't have in chapter 1. So these fit together very nicely, but, but you've got man, uh, both man and woman, being created on day 6. But Rick Phillips, a um, good commentator on this, makes the, the point that on the third day, uh, the God, uh, which was verses 9 through 13 of Genesis chapter 1, uh, God prepared the land and then he filled that land on day six, which would be verses 24 through 31, uh, with the living creatures. And when God created the living creatures, um, he created them over and over the word after their kind. So the beasts and the crawling creatures uh, and the, the cattle, uh, the word cattle is really just means domesticated animals, but each after their kind. And so in a former handout, I, I gave you some information on what kinds are. And that's actually a pretty significant feature to understand because you, when you get to the ark and Noah is told to take a certain number of animals of each kind, 
um, that we, we look at the, the plethora of species that we have today and we wonder how on earth could all of those various species be occupying this, this ark, which is actually quite voluminous. But the answer is actually very simple, that kinds are broader than species. And, and so you've got um, a very in, uh, easy way to understand it. But look at that handout that I gave you on, on what the nature of kinds are. And if you haven't been to the ARC uh, encounter uh, in Kentucky, you owe it to yourself to do that. It's, it's well worth the trip, uh, more than one trip. It's actually one of those things that you really, I think, can't fully exhaust in one trip. But we, we had a wonderful time there, and we're looking forward to going back. But the, the fact in, in, that the, uh, the animals are called living creatures in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, um, joins them with the, the creation of the fish and the fowl on an earlier day. And, and so you've got three categories of these creatures that are being created, the, the land animals, this is day six. Uh, the first we would call livestock. Um, the the, the ter term cattle is used in some translations. Um, and really what the word means is a dumb animal. That doesn't mean it's not intelligent. It, means, it just means that they're domesticated. So you'd have all of the animals that we would consider to be uh, beasts of burden today that they're used for uh, various work activities and the like. And, and that's, those were created uh, after their kind. Uh, and the word cattle is used. It's broader than what we would consider to be cattle. That just happens to be the term in the Hebrew that's used. Uh, behema is actually the, the, the Hebrew word that is used there. This is the bottom of page one if you're trying to follow along. And the second category are the creeping things, or as uh, some of us might say, the creepy things. Those are the, uh, the ones that uh, you'd have um, snakes and lizards and various reptiles and all sorts of things, not, not cuddly animals necessarily. But these would be the ones that are occupying the ground or under the ground and the like, and uh, they're all being created after their kind as well. And then the third category would be the beasts of the earth, uh, and these would be uh, the wild animals. Uh, these would be the, the lions, the tigers, uh, elephants, uh, and the like, um, bears, uh, various things. And, and so you've got each of them being created, uh, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, after their kind. And, and when we use that expression, after their kind, uh, just bear in mind what that really means is that um, they are being created in such a way that they are designed to reproduce and to replenish the earth, to, to fill the earth. And so all of the animals within a particular kind can breed uh, among each other and produce progeny. And so God is creating his, his creation, animate uh, creation, fish and fowl and, and beasts of the earth, etc., in such a way that they're designed to, to reproduce with each other and, and occupy the earth. And so he's creating all of this in such a way that it would, would replenish the earth over time. Uh, and, and so that's the significance of this expression, after their kind. So next page, page two, um, just a, a comment on that first full paragraph. Um, just the, the, the diversity of animals uh, that are being created. When we look at uh, the fish and the fowl and the, uh, the beasts on earth, all being created uh, in a couple of days, and, and you look, you've been to the, the St. Louis Zoo or maybe San Diego Zoo or some of, the, some of the other good zoos, and you've been to the aquariums, and you look at this, and, and you're really not even getting a complete picture of the diversity of all that God has made. 
Uh, but just the, the miraculous work, the creativity that, of God's creation, the beauty of his creation, uh, the wonders of his creation, and, and really our, the, the appropriate response is just to marvel at the, the God that, that spoke all of this into existence simply by saying, let there be. Uh, in each case, God said, let there be, and immediately there was. He, God spoke, and, and there was. And, and it was, it, he spoke and literally out of nothing. And suddenly you've got all of this being created because he, he willed it to happen, out of, not out of pre-existing material uh, and, and the like, but, uh, but literally just by saying, let there be. And immediately you've got it. So this, we're looking at six 24-hour days, roughly 24 hours, uh, not eons, not epochs of time and the like, uh, but, but normal solar days, and, and God is speaking, and immediately you've got this plethora of beautiful animals uh, that are being created to occupy uh, what he has formed in the previous three days uh, by creating the earth and the firmament and the dry land out of the water and separating the water from the, the earth, etc., and, uh, and occupying the stars or occupying the heavens with stars, and I mentioned this earlier, but just the comment uh, earlier in, in day four, that, that it's recorded, and he made the stars. And you've got billions of stars. And the scripture says he knows them all by name. And, and this, it, it, literally, that's true. And, and so we look at this, and, and constantly I'm just reminded that I don't know what challenges I'm facing, but the God that I serve is the same God that literally spoke all of creation into existence with simply a word, let there be. So there's nothing that he can't accomplish and won't accomplish that's for my good and for your good and for his glory. So we should be encouraged by that. I hope that as we move through this series of creation days that it, it, uh, it fills your heart uh, with a worshipful disposition and, and you're just amazed at the God that we serve, the God of the Bible. Uh, what, a, what, an, what a wonderful God that we have. And I'm reminded of Psalm 104. Turn in your scriptures to Psalm 104. Uh, it's, there's an excerpt here, verse 24. But Psalm 104 is a creation psalm. And, and it really encapsulates much of what we have dis, uh, discussed in previous times. The psalmist says in Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. You're wondering where the light came on day one. There's the answer right there. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. We talked about that when we talked about the expanse and the firmament and the waters above and the waters below. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He has established the earth upon its foundations. You remember when, when he separated the, the, the dry land out of the water. And, and so that's exactly what this is, so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. That's precisely what, what we read when we say that God separated the dry land out of the water. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down. 
to the place which you had established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. What he's saying is God established a boundary for the seas, and so that establishes the coastline. And he, he set a, a, a perimeter for, for the, the aquatic environment that he, that he created. He sends forth springs and valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. So God is creating not only the animals, but he's creating the means whereby they will be maintained, where they'll be nourished by his creation. So that's when we say he formed and then he filled. When he was forming, he was creating, if I can use the term, the infrastructure to support all that he would fill his creation with in days four, five, and six. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches, the waters. Uh, He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. So remember, he created grass and herbs after their kind and fruit trees after their kind. Why did he do that? To satisfy the needs of of his creation so that they'd have food to eat, so that they bring forth food from the earth and, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. That was day four. You appoint darkness, and it becomes light. Separated the darkness from the light. He called the the darkness night. He called the the light day, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. That's day six. The young lions roar after their prey, and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and labor until evening. This is creation of man and the dominion mandate in day six. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number. That's exactly the way that it was described when God created the aquatic animals, that they would swarm. Animals, both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan. This is one of the great beasts that that was described when he was creating the, the aquatic animals, which you formed a sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. I'll just stop there. But Psalm 104 is recounting what we've been looking at in these creation days. And and the psalmist is, is just reciting the, the majesty of all that God has made, simply by saying, let there be. And there was. Perfectly orchestrating the, the form of his creation and then filling it uh, with aquatic animals, with uh, animals in the, the fly in the, in the heavens, uh, with beasts on the earth, etc. all literally in, in days, normal days. And so, the, 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 just again, in, in the middle of, of page 2, Psalm 104, 24 exalts, O Lord, how manifold, how majestic, how beautiful are your works. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Well, 
So we've gotten through uh, beasts of the earth, um, animals that fly, um, animals that occupy the seas, and, and now we come to one more creation, and, this, and God is creating man. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and unlike everything else that God has spoken into existence, God is creating man to have fellowship with him, to have communion with him, to be able to interact with the very God of all creation. That is not the case with anything else that he has spoken into existence before. That's not the case with the animals or the fish or the, or the fowl. But he's creating man to have communion with him. And, and the scripture says, and, and actually there's a change in the, the way this is expressed. Earlier, it, when God would create, you'll, you'll see, let there be. God said, let there be, and there was. But here you have a different expression. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, plural, so it's not just Adam, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So here we have, just in a few lines, the creation of mankind, man and woman, to have dominion over all that he had created. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more fully, but by dominion, we're talking about stewardship. And God has created the animals and the plant life, etc. cetera, uh, the, the man would shepherd God's creation. God has created these things with wisdom and care and beauty, and so he's actually creating man not only to have a relationship with him, but to be what we'll call a vice regent, uh, a steward in his place uh, who's occupied with the responsibility to govern all that he has spoken into existence. That's our role. Is, is not to decimate the earth, but to shepherd it, to care for it, because that's what he did when he created these things. So there's a responsibility that we have in the dominion mandate to be careful and to, to be wise in what we do with God's creation. So you've got really, and I'm just going to go to page three at this point, so um, we'll talk about this expression, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Uh, sometimes I think we look at those expressions in our image and after our likeness as separate concepts. I'm not sure that they are because later uh, in Genesis 1, it simply says that God created man in his image. And so you've got two expressions, image and likeness, that I think are essentially speaking of the same thing. Speaking, But we'll talk about what does that mean, that man is made in the image of God and after the, the likeness of God. But notice the, the term, let us, first time that's occurred in Genesis 1. Every other time it's been, let there be. And here, it's very obvious, there's a complete change in the expression, let us. What do you notice about that? Us is a plural, right? So, it, it's, it, so you've got an intimation, a very clear intimation of the plurality of persons in the Godhead. Uh, earlier, you've got God creating the heavens and the earth in verse 1. And in verse 2, you've got the Spirit of God moving upon the face of, of the waters and the darkness and the like. Uh, and then we mentioned this earlier in Colossians 1. It's obvious that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, uh, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. 
So clearly all three persons of the Godhead were uh, actively involved in creation, but you have explicit reference to two of those members, two of those persons of the Godhead in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and here you have, let us make man in our image. What does that mean? Uh, in some cases, um, some commentators uh, have, I think, in error said, well, there's some kind of a conversation going on. Uh, who is the conversation by and between? Some people have said that it's between God and the angels. That, that clearly cannot be the case uh, because angels are not made in the image of God. Uh, you, in, in the angels are not participants in creation. God is the, is the one who's making all that is, not the angels. The angels are created beings. Uh, and so it, it, that's, that doesn't hold up. Uh, in some cases, uh, people have used it as a plural of majesty, uh, sort of the royal we. Uh, well, that doesn't make sense either because that doesn't fit the context of what's going on. What you have here uh, in the middle of page three is it's a plural of deliberation, a divine deliberation. Uh, and one person, Henry Blocker, says this, God addresses himself, let us make man in our image. But he can do this only because he has a spirit Verse 2 Genesis 1 speaks of the Spirit of God who is both with him and distinct from him at the same time. And so here are the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. We've spoken of, of this earlier. Uh, but you have this consultation going on within the triune Godhead, which has not occurred before. That doesn't mean that all three members of the Godhead weren't involved in creation. They were. But here you have deliberation going on by and between God himself, the three persons of the Godhead, let us collectively make man in our image, plural. And so man is being created to serve a particular function and made in, a, in an entirely different way and for an entirely different role than anything and everything that's been made beforehand. So this is clearly uh, the capstone of all creation. Um, you've got man, this goes to chapter 2, we won't jump over there, we'll discuss this more fully in, in, a, in a little bit uh, next week, next time. But uh, man is formed from the dust of the ground, but the life that he has, the scripture says that God breathed life into him. But he's made from the ground, but he actually becomes a living being because God breathed life into him. And, and so, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God. Go to, go to page four. And by the way, um, you're wondering what's going to happen with all 15 pages. I've got a couple of appendices in the notes, and, and sometimes I will do this uh, just for supplemental reading about the image of God and the majesty of creation, and it's there for you to enjoy over the next several days. You can read this on your own. But the image of God, um, man is created uh, to be God's visible representation or living image on the earth, 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1. And the qualities that the scripture specifically attaches to mankind as being in the image of God are knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. If you read some of the Reformed confessions and the Reformed catechisms, the question is made, what does it mean that God created man? And the answer that is being that is given uh, is is specifically that man is created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after the image of God. But where did that come from? 
It comes from specifically from Ephesians 4, verse 24, and Colossians 3, verse 10. And we'll look at those passages because I think it's very helpful for us to see what does the Scripture say and the significance of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And then further, man is created not only uh, to be God's representation on earth, to bear a likeness to him, and to have these qualities of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, uh, but he has unique value. We'll explore that. Uh, this is the basis for um, the, the sixth commandment, uh, you shall not murder. Uh, it, it bears on capital punishment. It deals with human government, Romans 13. Uh, it deals with civil conduct between one person and the next. How do we speak to each other? Uh, all of those, and we'll explore this momentarily, all of those have their basis in a man being created in the image of God. And obviously, this is front and center for the whole issue of the sanctity of human life. You can't possibly understand man being made in the image of God and be anything but pro-life. It, it's impossible to understand man being made in the image of God and not be pro-life, because God is pro-life, because all of creation is made in the image, all of man is made in the image of God. And so you've got that, that issue, and then you've got the dominion over the world as God's representative. Uh, Michael Barrett very succinctly summarized all of those things. Well, what does it mean, this, this aspect of man being created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? Two passages, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. And I've reproduced those for you, and it's very interesting when you begin to unpack this. Look at Ephesians 4, uh, in, on uh, page 4. This is all about killing sin. This is all about mortifying sin. It's all about putting off and putting on. Uh, and so Paul is saying, and he's affirming with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart, etc., etc. You didn't learn Christ this way, verse 20. So he's, he's saying, what does it mean to be a child of God? And, and what, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth in Jesus. Well, what do you do? You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. This is the, the old nature. And you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Look, look at this expression, in the likeness of God. Do you see that? We've been created. What does it mean to be in the likeness of God? In holiness and in righteousness. Well, how do we grow in being conformed to the image of God? By, by, by the process of sanctification, by killing sin, by mortifying sin. You realize, of course, that at the fall, the image of God was defaced. And, and so you had this catastrophic event that took place within Adam. When Adam sinned, all of his progeny fell in him. All of us fell in him. He was our federal head. And when he violated the, the, the sanctum of God by taking the forbidden fruit, he fell and all of us fell in him. Romans 5.12 says that very specifically. And, and we die because of that, not only physically, but certainly spiritually as well. And, and so, so the image of God was defaced in all of us uh, because of Genesis 3. But we're being conformed to the image of God it, it, it progressively <coughs> in this life 
And ultimately, if, if you consider uh, 1 John 3, the scripture says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be like Christ. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Next verse, For those whom he knew, for whom he also predestined to to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, Jesus Christ is the express image of God himself. We were made in the image of God. Do we bear that image today? We do. Perfectly? Absolutely not. How is this process of being renewed in the image of God taking place? It is literally being renewed in each believer's life by the process of sanctification, imperfectly, ultimately in glorification. That's what 1 John is saying, that we will be like him. We will see him. So what you've got, we, we, just to backtrack a little bit, justification is that act of God whereby sinners are uh, forgiven of their sin and regarded as righteousness only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. So it deals with the penalty of sin uh, and the curse of sin. And then you've got sanctification that deals with the power of sin and the, the presence of sin in our lives and ultimately glorification when we would be completely delivered from the very presence of sin altogether. And then the the process of the restoration of the image of God will be complete. What Ephesians 4 is saying is that the way that we're growing more and more into the image of God is because we're growing in holiness and righteousness. That's sanctification. Well, Colossians 3 is a parallel passage, and and again, it uses almost exactly the same language. Look over at the top of page 5, where Paul says, Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you what? Have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Do you see this expression, renewed according to the image of the one who created him? That's exactly what what is being described here. We're being renewed in the image of God. How is that? It's the image of knowledge. So between Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, it's very clear that this image of God that was defaced in Genesis 3 is being restored in the process of sanctification as we are putting off the old man and putting on the new man as we are killing sin. And so this process of being conformed to the image of Christ, it, all of the difficulties in life, the battle against sin, uh, all of this, guess what? It's a process whereby God is gradually but surely and certainly restoring the image of God in his children. This is unique to the child of God. This is not happening in an unregenerate person. But a child of God is being restored in the very image of God. That which was lost in Genesis 3 will be restored. Do you, do you follow what's, what's happening here in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3? It's majestic, this, this process of, of sanctification that God has designed so that what was lost will ultimately be restored in his very creation. So all of this has a great purpose. The Westminster Confession on Creation, chapter 4 
uh, says God made all the other creatures, after he made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, reasonable, rational and immortal souls, that we, we have a soul that lives forever, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. And then I, I quoted the, the shorter catechism for you earlier. So, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? Man possesses a, a rational nature and a moral nature. A, a rational nature that, that we think that we're capable of processing things, we're capable of, of distinguishing between right and wrong. Uh, the, the animals simply don't have that capacity. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife will get a kick out of this. Um, the ability to, to think uh, and process. There was, a, there was a night when I was laying in bed in, in her bedroom and I looked up on the, the, the wall and I thought, what is a bird doing hanging from the, the ceiling? How'd a bird get in here? Then I realized that the bird was hanging upside down and that the bird had these wings that looked amazingly like a bat. It was a bat, a bat in our bedroom. I called Diana and said, there's a bat in here. And she said, there is. She closed the door. So it was me and the bat. And uh, she, was, she was protecting the rest of the house from the bat. And, and so, that sounds humorous, but so... I had to make a distinction between what is it that I'm seeing. I had to process what I was observing. I had to make a, a threat assessment. This is not a sustainable situation, me and the bat. Something's got to change here. So I had to, I had to consider a variety of alternatives. What do I have with which I can deal with this bat in, in, the, in the bedroom? So I had a T-shirt, and I took the T-shirt, and I, I batted the bat down <laughs> and uh, wrapped the bat up in a T-shirt. And Where do I go with this? Well, I, I took it outside and threw it in the backyard. Uh, it, well, an animal, my dog looking at that, the dog would have simply just laid there and looked at it or would have run away, you know. But, but God has created us so that we can process things, we can think through them, we can make an assessment of a threat, we can consider alternatives, we can distinguish a bat from a bird, uh, we, can, we can make a determination about what course of action should be taken. All this took place in about two minutes. Well, I'm not exalting my, my wisdom. I'm just saying an animal doesn't do that. This is that God has created us with an amazing ability to process information and, and to protect ourselves. Uh, and so that's just a, a humorous example. I look back on it. I, I think it's actually kind of humorous. So I thought I'd, I'd share me and, me and my bat story with you. We had to actually get a bat specialist to come over and, and, and deal with the, the juvenile bat uh, uh, colloquium that we had in our attic, you know, so that we, they wouldn't be persisting, and, and so we created a bat house out in the backyard so they'd find a place to live. All of this takes place. So anyway, that's all for free. That's that's not in the notes. <laughs> but I, I thought you'd enjoy. When I talk about a rational nature, hopefully you consider what I just discussed as a rational process of making an assessment about what am I going to do about this situation? How am I going to make this decision? How am I going to consider a range of alternatives and choose the one that's most plausible to pursue and then actually execute that plan and avoid being injured in the process? And that, 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 that's something that God has enabled human beings to do that animals simply can't do. So God has created man with a rational nature and the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Animals do what they're conditioned to do. If you reward their behavior, they'll, they'll behave in a certain way. Or they, they're saying this is morally right and that's morally wrong. No, they're doing that which either results in food or the avoidance of pain or, or something of that nature. And, but they're not making a moral determination of, of what they, they should be doing. 
But all of this, I mentioned this earlier, has been, you know, uh, impacted by the fall. Uh, go over to Genesis, uh, or pardon me, uh, page 6. And, and so the, the reform statements will say that in Genesis 3 that we fell into a state of sin and misery. What does it mean, page 6, that we fell into an estate of sin? Um, a very succinct answer. It's the guilt of Adam's first sin. That's Romans 5.12. That's, that's our culpability in our federal head. Our want of original righteousness or our lack of original righteousness. We're, we're corrupt. We're not what we were when we were created. The corruption of the whole nature. So it's pervasive. Uh, commonly called original sin. Together with all the actual transgressions that proceed from it. So we're sinners because we sin and we're sinners because we're constituted sinners in Adam. So the misery of our estate, well, what, all mankind in the fall lost communion with God, Genesis 3. We, we, that's why we have in Genesis 3.15 the promise of a redeemer, a majestic passage that we'll look at in a few weeks, Lord willing. We're under his wrath and curse. That's why we need a substitute. And made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself and the pains of hell forever. All of those are repercussions of the fall in Genesis 3. Well, the implications of being made in the image of, of God. And um, uh, Louis Burkhoff said this, The essence of man consists in this, that he is in the image of God, and he's distinguished from all other creatures and stands supreme as the head and crown of the whole creation. By, by supreme as the head and crown of the whole creation, that's, he's referring to what we call the dominion mandate, where God created man to have dominion over his creation. Uh, to reign in God's place, literally to, to be God's appointed steward over what he had spoken into existence. Who's responsible for discharging the care of all of this? Mankind. And that's a very weighty responsibility, that we, we care for the creation, we care for the environment, we care for the animals. No, I'm not a rabid environmentalist, but, but, but I, I, is it important for us to be wise about what we do with the, the world that God has created for us? Absolutely. Or am I an animal activist? No, but, but, but does the scripture say that, that we should be care providers for animals? There's a number of passages that if we find an animal in a ditch, we're not simply to walk away and, and, and ignore it. And, and the, God is aware of each and every bird, and, and he cares for them. And so, I mean, we're, we're to, to care for God's creation. We're to be stewards of what he's made. So, but we, we have this role of being vice regents. And, and so I've got a, a discussion for you from Ronald Showers about abortion and man in the image of God. And I'm just going to hit the high points here for you. Go over to page 7. I'd like to spend a whole session on the issue of abortion, but, I, but I've got some articles here for you, and I think each and every one of you understand the implications here. But the, the issue of abortion is such a tragic issue because literally the image of God is being slaughtered in every case. At conception, you have the image of God that exists. And, and so it's, it's, it's not strictly speaking, a political issue. It is that. Uh, there are sometimes pastors that want to avoid addressing the subject. They shouldn't. It's a theological issue. It's a biblical issue. It doesn't mean that every Sunday we talk about it, but we can't avoid dealing with the consequences of the nature of life. It's, 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 it's unavoidable. We're dealing with one of the most precious 
aspects of all God's creation, the capstone of God's creation. In day six, every time there's a conception of a human being, you have the image of God being created. And every time you have an abortion, you have literally the murder of the image of God. And that's why we are pro-life. That's why we plead with moms and dads to preserve children. And we don't just ask them to change their behavior. We, we do that. We, we, we plead with them to spare the, the lives of an, unsafe, uh, an, un, uh, an unprotected child. Um, but we, we want them to know Jesus. We, we want their souls to be saved. We, we want them to have new hearts. So we're not simply going after behavioral modification. But it's unavoidable to deal with the, the issue of abortion when you're talking about the image of God. I, I, when I was looking at day six, I thought, I have to touch on this because it's the most urgent cause of our day, I think, in terms of the sanctity of life. Well, what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, clearly it's not a physical likeness. Man is a, God is a spirit. John 4, 24 says that. He's incorporeal. He has not a physical, tangible body. So that's not it. But what we have is a moral likeness and a rational likeness to God. We looked at that in Ephesians 4, and we looked at that in Colossians 3. So we're created to be a moral being. Go over to page 8, and there are five key points, and I'm simply going to, to mention these. But, but one of them is, the first is that man is the highest form of God's creation. At no point did God say to animals and plant life that they are made in the image of God. That simply is not true. Only man is given that distinction. So that, that clearly is a differentiating factor that, that makes us different than, than all of the other uh, aspects of God's creation. Secondly, uh, it's, it's the basis for our dominion uh, over the earth um, because that's a command that God has given, a responsibility that we be his representative uh, over all that he has made. Uh, on behalf of, of, uh, of himself uh, to administer that rule in a, in a proper manner, so to be his vice regent, as some people will call it. Uh, top of page 9, man is vice regent, typo, should be V-I-C-E, regent. And this is the aspect of, of Psalm 8 in looking at man as God's delegated responsibility of caring over uh, all that he has made. Third, uh, it, it literally is the basis for uh, the scripture's uh, dictum with respect to capital punishment. Genesis 9, uh, verse 5 and 6, uh, speaks very specifically about this. And surely uh, your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man, Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6. This is exactly the basis for the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, 20 verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. It, it, the, the word that is used is not just kill, but to murder. Um, and, and so capital punishment, which is, is a biblical concept, um, indeed, was ordained by God because of the sanctity of life, because man is made in the image of God. That's, the, that's exactly what verse 6 says. So God ordained this, and it's because human life was made in the image of God. Top of page 10.
The, the, the third aspect uh, is that God ordained capital uh, punishment for animals and humans who murder a human being. He did not ordain it for human beings that kill an animal. I think we understand that. And then another dimension besides capital punishment, this is the, the basis for human government. In Romans 13, what, what's the function of human government? It's to preserve the peace and to preserve law and order. We actually had uh, a service some years ago where we recognized law enforcement officials and first responders as, as God's emissaries to, to maintain the peace and to, to, to protect human life. That's, that's why they, they were commissioned to do exactly what they are. But human government is based on the fact that man is created in the image of God. That's specifically what Romans 13 teaches. And then fifth, down at the bottom of page 10, uh, another aspect for uh, man being made in the image of God has to do with us being civil with each other, social conduct. Whether it's in social media or interaction with our neighbor, we're talking about not just fellow believers, we're talking about any person, any and every person is made in the image of God. And so we need to be wise and respectful in the way that we interact with each other because man is made in the image of God. That James uh, 3, verse 9, very specifically addresses that. So we cannot be um, disrespectful of others who are made in the image of God, whether they're believers or not. We can be assertive, we can speak the truth in love, uh, but James 3 says one implication of man being made in the image of God is our civil conduct, our, our, our social demeanor with each other. So all of these are implications of man being made in the image of God. So that I'm going to be uh, stopping there just in the interest of time, but what I want to bring out to you uh, is on pages 13 and 14 and 15 are appendices that deal specifically with the issue of abortion and the image of God uh, on page 13, and then uh, something from Calvin's Institutes uh, on the majesty of God's creation on pages 14 and 15, creation and God's glory. So we've touched on the sixth day, and we've talked about the creation of man. Let us make man in our image uh, after our likeness. Uh, and the image of God, what that means and what it does not mean, and the implications of the image of God in mankind, uh, the responsibilities that we have. We briefly touched on the dominion mandate because we, we serve, uh, not uh, we glorify God among many other ways by being responsible in the way that we exercise the dominion that he has assigned to us, uh, and that's, that's our responsibility. So we'll pick up there. I I would simply say this. At the end of chapter 1 and verse 31, God saw all that he has made, and it was very good. It was very good. It didn't remain that way. In Genesis 3, it changed. But when God created everything, it was very, very good. And so in six days, he made all that is. We'll talk about the seventh day, Lord willing. Uh, next uh, next time we gather uh, on, on on the Lord's day, Father, I thank you that.